Entrepreneurs can get stuck in their head. If you dream of changing the world, but you're not sure where to start, the Add Value to Entrepreneurs podcast will help you transform your life and business. This podcast is for entrepreneurs who want more freedom and fulfillment from their work so they can live the life that they desire. You deserve it, and it is possible. It's time for you to add value. This episode is brought to you by Perfect Publishing. Perfect Publishing is a different approach to publishing a book. Perfect Publishing is sharing a project of hope. We carefully chose heroes of hope who exemplify living a life they created through faith, hope, patience, and persistence. No matter what page you open to in this mini cube of hope, you will find a leader with a big heart. You see you are not alone. The authors may share similar challenges that only hope and action could resolve. Get your free ebook at getadoseofhope.com. Get a dose of hope.com. Our guest today is Justin Brady. Justin amplifies the best ideas on earth through his PR company, Cultivate Strategies. He hosts the Justin Brady Show, featuring the world's top CEOs, number one best selling authors, cultural icons, politicians, and presidential candidates. Brady works with the most forward thinking brands on earth to amplify their message to millions of people instead of a standard PR approach involving mass pitching stories via brute force. Brady's strategy relies on the exchange of knowledge value for exposure to audiences. This approach is far more effective. Justin Brady and Robert discuss the lessons in failure. Failure is our friend when you know you are failing and are intentional about using the lesson to improve. You have to set goals so you know where you are failing. It doesn't take much. 90% of the people are going through the motions. 5% do what they say and 5% are truly great. You simply need to start being intentional and do what you say. Well, Justin, thank you so much for coming on the show today. I am just so excited to uh, share your journey and and your expertise, and I just appreciate you taking the time today. Thanks for having me on the show, Robert. Appreciate it. Absolutely. So I just have each guest start the show with their entrepreneurial journey and what's kind of got them to to where they are today. Oh, okay. yeah, so started graphic design company right out of school. It was just myself, basically freelancing, and didn't see the signs that that thing was dying and that I wasn't really good at it. I think I think what did me in was like I could do a good design project for my clients, but what did me in was um, so I could do a good design project because I would just really work hard on it and keep going, and uh, I would keep pushing around pixels and make it make it what you know looked professional. I wasn't naturally skilled at it, so what uh, finally did me in was seeing another designer and how fast he worked, and I was like, this is not my thing. And I think I think clients could read that, I could read that discouragement, and clients started kind of you know, not, you know, doing new projects with me. And I eventually just closed up shop, went to work for a company and then spun out, um, out of that company, did a communications PR company many years ago. So that's what I've been doing ever since. But that, that's my entrepreneurial journey right there in a nutshell. Well, that's the quick version for sure. That is right, definitely I- the quick version. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I mean, I, I want to dig into that freelancer because I know there there's obviously lots of entrepreneurs that start out as, yeah. as freelancers and and especially on the artist side, that tendency for perfection and that tendency for, you know, you can make something really good, um, but but perfecting it and the time involved in, in perfecting it can can really 
be, you know, a form of procrastination. It can be a form of, you know, holding, holding you back. Um, and, and so I want to dig a little into that. Obviously that business died, but you've learned a lesson from it and, and hopefully applied that to, you know, the work you're doing now. No, absolutely. Um, so yeah, if you, if the, if you want to know what the core lesson was there, the core lesson was give up faster. Like, um, I, you know, there's, I, I just hate the, I, I really can't, and maybe I'm wrong. Maybe right. Maybe someone has better data than me, but I just can't stand the whole never give up crap. I think that's toxic. I think it's highly, highly dangerous because people, well, people interpret that incorrectly. I think, I think some people here, you know, never give up. And so they, um, they make their own judgments based on whatever's going on in their situation. So for me, that was, I had this design company, I was told never give up. And so I just kept doing this thing that clearly was not working. Clearly there was no market fit and I just kept doing it. And so that was dumb, right? You should absolutely give up on things because when you give up on things um, and you acknowledge that failure, you can, take the data from that experience, figure out why it failed, and then make something better, right? But I think that a lot of people confuse that, and they say, well, this will work if I never give up. And that's just not true. If you never give up, sometimes you'll uh, carry that failure with you to the grave. So it's uh, a good idea to understand when you're already failing, right? That's that's the distinction is some people are like, well, if I give up, that's the failure. I'm like, bro, you're already failing. Like, look around you. This is bad. I wrote a I wrote a piece on this years ago, but basically, if the if your relationships are destroyed, if your relationship with God is destroyed, or if it's not God, it's something else. Like your family is destroyed. Uh, if your mental health is destroyed, if these things are all having some problems, right? Then that then you should probably give up. Money's not on that list, by the way. If you're paying your bills and your obligations to other people, and you're fine going without money, fine. Do you know you do you? Obviously, for me. Um, at the end of the business there, when money was getting tighter and tighter, for me, one of my obligations to everybody else is paying people that I owe. So that was also becoming a problem. And so I was like, ah, this is not going to be a good path. And so that's what finally choked out the business. But truthfully, I should have I jumped ship, Robert, like five years before I did uh, because I was already failing. So when a lot of people say, like, when you give up, that's the failure, eh, that's just ignorant right? You were already failing. Sometimes you need to step back and realize you're already failing and you need to stop failing and learn the lesson, right? When you fail, when you actually put a rubber stamp on something and say, that sucked, that didn't work. When you actually do that, the next step is to say, okay, why didn't that work? And a lot of people skip those two steps. They don't acknowledge failure. And then when they do fail, they just, I'm going to move forward. It's like, okay, great. But you can't move forward without data, right? If you're on a bike and you keep falling over, if you don't stop and look, hey, I've biked before, you don't stop and look at the back tire that's flat, you're going to keep falling, right? You're going to keep having problems. So you have to analyze, you have to stop, and you have to grab that data. Failure data is so, so valuable. But everyone's like, oh, you know, I, yeah, I just, I hate the whole mentality about don't quit, never fail. Of course you're going to fail. Absolutely. Well, and there's a couple there's a couple of, of ideas like that that are out there, right? The little cliche statements that right. on yeah. the surface, you're like, oh yeah. But then if you really think about it, people are applying them to their lives and, and they're actually hurting them, right? Yeah. Because they're, they're riding a train that's going to nowhere. Right. <laughs> and so, yeah, you know, there, there is data that, that you can use. And you mentioned a few of the things in there, right? 
if you're if you're messing up with your relationships if you're if you're not making enough money right if yeah. if you're not delivering on time or you know your relationship with your clients are breaking down because you're not honoring agreements there's there's yeah. a lot of signs and and i think one of the challenges for many entrepreneurs is is knowing what to have as a kpi what what yes, to have as, as a as a key indicator to you know is this thing working or or is it not working um, and, and of course, coming from my perspective as a coach, I think that there's that independent spirit in an entrepreneur that says, oh, I got it. I got it. I got it. I can, I'm a, you know, I'm an adult. I can figure this out <laughs> and, and trying to make it work on their own instead of saying, man, I, I don't, this doesn't feel right. Who can help me? Yeah, exactly. And you touched on it, right? Uh, goals. And again, it's another area that people, I think, quick too quickly gloss over. But if you set specific goals and markers, then you know when you're failing. And that's where a lot of people don't, you know, I, uh, my goals for that early company, it's called Test of Time Design. You might find it somewhere if you Google it. Um, but my goals were just grow. And that's a dumb goal. If you're setting financial goals, just set something clear, something that you have to, you either will achieve or will not achieve it then you know when you're failing, right? So that's the thing is like, well, how do I know when I'm really failing? Because if I'm not making money, but I'm okay with money and I'm stable, like, how do I know? That's how you know. You set those goals yearly, two years out, and you say, if I hit these goals, I'm succeeding. If I'm not hitting these goals, I'm failing. And then if you are failing to hit those goals for a few years, your goals either suck or you your whole business model sucks, Right. And I, I didn't do that either. I just kept thinking, well, growth of the company is a goal. And so if I didn't grow that year, I'd be like, but I'm building for next year. You know, I kept in my head justifying why I wasn't hitting those goals. If I would have set target goals, I probably would have gotten out. And, and what I'm doing now is so much better. And the reason I got into PR and communications is because I figured, well, the problem with my design company is that I'm not marketing myself well enough. And therefore, I'll look into this PR and communication stuff and get earned media and all that stuff and write for big publications. That'll save it. And I ended up going that direction because it was more fun. So yeah, very specific targets, very specific goals. Everyone glosses over that. And it's even a struggle, by the way, when I onboard a new client for PR and comm stuff. This is one of the struggles up front. They don't want to talk about specific goals. And so I have to like, my, 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 I always want to say pull teeth, but my brother's a dentist and he says pulling teeth is actually very easy. So oh. uh, I always want to force people, <laughs> I always want to force people up front into identifying specific goals. And believe it or not, it's very hard for people to do that in corporate cultures because they don't like the idea of setting something specific that they may not hit. Oh, that. That that's a, a huge, um, you know, psychological issue, and but also just, you know, leads to that idea of fear of failure for not reaching the goal, fear of success. What happens if I do reach the goal, right? And 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 there's a lot of of that. We are we are incredible in our culture at at goal writing, right? We put a goal down on paper, but a much smaller percentage of people are actually goal achievers and. And can accomplish those goals on on a regular and consistent basis. And I think it uses a different part of the brain. It it requires a different you know set of actions. Um, but of course, you still have to write the goal to become a goal you know achiever. And and so helping people yeah, put goals down and and then be accountable to it. Right, that's the extra right. piece that that it really just takes is is this power of 
of, of working together, this power of putting the goal out there in a public space and saying, hey, will you will you help hold me accountable to this? Will you help make sure I'm I'm trying to get this and, and do it? And when I don't get it, let's let's have you know a debrief and talk about why I didn't get it. And and that's where maybe the idea that, oh, this company sucks, dude. You you better quit, <laughs> right? Would come out. Yeah, exactly. And and it's what's there's this weird, there's this other weird you know, thinking, and I don't know where, maybe it's just me. I, I doubt it's just me, but there's this other, there's, there's this other thinking that like, there's this one thing, this one passion that you have, and you must pursue that passion. And I remember when I was doing my first company, I reached out to my dad and I asked my dad, he's a, he's also a dentist. It's weird. Everyone's dentist in my family, but me, uh, I asked him like, what would you have done? Cause this is when I was starting to go through that, you know, embracing failure. Like, what would you have done if dentistry wasn't the thing? And he's like, I don't know what I would have done. That was it for me. And so I was like, well, that confirms it, you know, stick with your passion. And so I stuck again with this failing passion. And then it, it took me a little while to realize it wasn't a passion anymore. But now I was just doubling down because of sunken costs and because that was my identity. And, you know, I, my identity was the entrepreneur that owned this company. And if I would fail at that, that wouldn't be my identity anymore. And so it, it took me uh, kind of a while to embrace, to, to understand, um, that it wasn't my passion. Right. And, and here's, what's fascinating is after closing the business, this, this passionate thing that I couldn't imagine not doing after I closed it within two months, maybe a month, I was relieved it was dead. This passion, I was relieved. I was like, oh, thank goodness this piece of crap is dead. I like, what, if it was um, a physical object, it would have set fire and walked away slow motion style with explosions. But I, I felt so good about it later. And I was like, this is weird because this was my passion at one point. I couldn't see my life without it. And now I'm so relieved and happy it's dead. Like, what kind of, and so then I went into this other company that I worked at for a short time. And I was like, I could be fine here. I could have a happy life here. I'm contributing. I like my coworkers. I can be fine here for the rest of my life. Then I went over, I did a uh, live radio for iHeartRadio for a little while. I interviewed six, seven presidential candidates for iHeartRadio. Wow. And I was on that and I was thinking, Hey, I could do this for a living, right? Like, and now I'm doing this PR comms thing. And now at this point I figured out that, your skills, everyone has a unique set of skills, right? Everyone has unique value, unique sets of skills that other people don't have. I'm a big, big believer in Strengths Finder and Gallup's uh, Clifton Strengths. Uh, if you haven't done your strengths, everybody, I would encourage you. I would implore you. I would demand. I can't do that, but Robert can demand <laughs> that you do that because what, what's amazing to me is those unique strengths I have are applicable in many different fields. And so often we take those internal strengths we have in here, we find what we think is a fit and we say, I have unique strengths. We know that deep down we're very unique, which we're, we are. I have these unique strengths. I have found this thing that I fit fit that I think fits. And because I'm so unique, that also must be a unique role. That must be my thing. What we don't realize is those unique strengths we have actually do have mass appeal into many other industries and spaces. We just don't know that until we let go of that thing or that thing dies. And then later we're like, oh, these this this kind of stuff applies many different areas. Oh, so good. Well, this the one thing reminds me, our culture paints this picture that there's one magical person out there for you, that that there's one perfect partner 
that that if you discover this person that they will be and so every person you meet and the first thing you see of course after that date first date is is oh they've got this flaw oh they got this flaw oh they have this flaw well they must not be the one right and, <laughs> and we have all these people looking for looking for the one and, Interesting. and the idea that it's a choice it, it's a choice to love someone and commit to them in yeah. spite of their flaws and yeah, it's kind it really of the is. same thing in this entrepreneur space you choose a path and you say it's a it's a choice based on my you talk about skills and and talents and gifts that apply in that area and and it's a choice but that choice can change and 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 move into into a different place and and that's right. where the not quit right never give up i will never give up being an entrepreneur but the tools i use I can I can change right the system. I can change the process. I can change who yep. I serve. I can change a lot of different things to to get that right fit, <laughs> right? I can even and change. There, and there are a lot of companies that reward entrepreneurial thinking, and I don't even know what that means. You know, entrepreneur <laughs> people like entrepreneurial. We want entrepreneurial thinking. I'm like, well, entrepreneurs, you know, has a definition, um, but you know, in uh, some people call it intrapreneurial. You know, in, an intrapreneur, right? But I think what that means basically, because it's it's a weird way to say it, is people get there are organizations that give you the freedom to create and contribute to the company in a way you see fit and a way you think best aligns with the company's goals and your own goals. There are companies that do that. And what's fascinating when I worked for this company for a short period, who they're a client today, we have still amazing relationship with them. They like I was floored because I started out as an entrepreneur, right? If I took a client to lunch or I traveled somewhere, it was on me. That was my dime. That was my risk. And when I was working for this company, all of a sudden I had like an expense account, which was bizarre to me. Someone would come into my office and clean it and empty my trash. I had an IT support. Like if there was some, as an entrepreneur by myself, I had to pay someone or fix my own computer or figure it out two hours on a message board somewhere on Reddit with someone that figured out how to fix my thing. <laughs> But at that company, I would just ping IT and say, hey, my computer's doing a thing. Someone would magically show up at my door, take it, fix it, bring it back. And I was just like, this is truly insane. You guys, and like my flights, all my business meetings, drinks, food, all of it was paid for by the company. And I was like, you know, at that company I found, and in a lot of other companies where friends work, they have a lot more freedom than I do at times to be creative because they don't have to worry about the support crap. And so everyone's like, you know, students will tell me when I speak at colleges, oh, I really want to be an entrepreneur like you. How do I be an, and I was like, whoa, whoa, whoa hold, why do you want to be an entrepreneur? Like, well, cause I want the, you know, I, you know, they have no, it's deer in the headlights. They have no idea why they want to be an entrepreneur. I'm like, you know, you can become an entrepreneur when the, the problem you want to solve or the thing you want to do is impossible for you to do anywhere else. Right. That's when you become an entrepreneur, when no one else is doing it, when you can't work in it, when you can't fulfill that burn inside you that tells you you need to do this thing, go, go try it, go fail, go, you know, whatever. But, if you just want to be an entrepreneur because you think it's cool or you think it gives you some freedom or some people will say like, I want to be an entrepreneur to be my own boss. I'm like, oh, bro, sit down. Guess what? <laughs> I have 10 bosses. They're all great, but they think their time is more valuable than the next guy. Right. And all my clients are absolutely fantastic. But the point being, you know, some days I'd rather just have one boss. <laughs> absolutely. Well, you mentioned that there's companies out there that reward that entrepreneurial spirit. And you talked about the ability to create 
the other piece of that is they create a safe space to fail, right? right? A safe space for those creations to work or not work. And, and I think that's challenging in a lot of corporate environments is, is to have that safe space to get it wrong. <laughs> and, and, and so you've learned to recognize, you know, fail faster, right? Fail, fail quicker. But, but as an entrepreneur, a lot of times, you know, fail quicker means I don't eat, <laughs> right? Whereas in a company, yeah. if I fail quicker, at least they're paying for my dinner. And so I still have, I still <laughs> right. have that option. Right. And, and, and of course the, the freedom that an entrepreneur is wanting comes on the back of years of slogging through doing your own tech, doing right. your own marketing, doing your own, because you can't afford to outsource those things until you've got Correct. something working. And, and that's what most people, you know, they look at Tony Robbins or Dean Graziosi and he's like, I want to be an entrepreneur. Look at those guys, you know, without looking at all the hard work those guys did to get to where they are. Yep. Um, our microwave culture definitely lends us towards this idea of, I want their results without doing <laughs> their effort. Right. I mean, that's exactly it. Right. And that's a universal problem. That's a problem. And, um, you know, people are like, well, how am I going to find a company that allows me to be flat? Yeah. It's a problem. That's a challenge. Uh, it's it's no like I, I wrote a, a piece in the Wall Street Journal in 2012 about every company wants creativity. No one wants to shell out for it. You know, like everyone wants to. There was a company I was touring where I live. My home is in Des Moines, Iowa, and there was a company I was touring here in Des Moines, Iowa, who will go unnamed. But I was touring it, and one of their employees told me about their game room. Like you have a game. That's cool. Pool tables, all this cool stuff. So that's pretty cool. Uh, I was like, why is no one in it? And she's like, oh, well, I think she's like, yeah, I mean, people are working. <laughs> and I'm like, well, what, wait, whoa, whoa. Why did you make this stupid thing then if no one uses it? She's like, I guess the company thinks people are going to stay after work and use it because, you know, for fun. But truth be told, we just want to go home. I'm like, well, yeah, I, yeah, I don't, I, you know, I, People want the creativity, right? They they think they want the creativity, and they're willing to put these widgets in place, or or push push a lever and push a uh, pull a lever, push a button to get creativity. But they're not willing to actually do the hard work to get there, right? And so the piece I wrote in the Wall Street Journal was about look, the pool tables, the free beer on tap, all that cool startup stuff you read about in Fast Company is is not it's not going to do it for you that it's not going to do a darn thing what you actually have to do is let creativity happen because it's already happening this company had a couple thousand employees i think something like that and the fact that no creativity has come out of that company isn't possible because people are creative that's not possible unless your organization is limiting it somehow and so uh, i tell a lot of entrepreneurs like it is really hard to find the organizations that are creative and then let you do that. It is just like it's hard for them to find good employees, right? It's hard to find those employees that are be willing to flex their creativity. I, I kind of, maybe this is offensive, but I always call it the 95, five rule. 90% of people just choose to be stupid. 90% just choose to not work hard. They just choose to go by. They choose to not chase their dreams. They choose to just sit idly by and complain about everything. That's why you, you know, it's always hard to find good service or a good company you really do business with because 90% are crap. Sorry. Uh, and then 5% are good, average, fine. Those are the ones that you tell your friends about, by the way. This company actually, I ordered a thing and it came out the way I ordered it. Amazing service. Like, 
hitting <laughs> just fulfilling what you said you were going to do is like the 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 top here in the here here in the world right you're you're like firing on all cylinders if you just do the bare minimum but then 5 maybe even 2% of companies are truly great and you know the, i would say the same is true about candidates and it's not that 90% of people are stupid 5% are average and 2% 5% are great it's that 90% choose to just eh, 5% choose to just meet, yeah, I'll, I'll deliver what you paid, and 2 to 5% choose to just go beat the crap out of everything and work really, really hard, right? Absolutely. Well, and I think it, it's just that way with, with individuals, right? I mean, even Napoleon Hill back in uh, 100 years ago basically said the same thing. There's 98 out of every every 100 are going through the motions, are not yeah, achieving, not not trying to, to, you know, and millions and millions of people have read Think and grow rich, and two percent apply it, and, right? And and make it happen. You you mentioned something really interesting in there, and I think um, that idea of you know the company company having the game room and 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 nobody using it. And I think about obviously studied you know successful entrepreneurs, and and I think about Walt Disney and and Henry Ford, both kind of in the same time frame pre war, and. And they challenge their engineers and they challenge their artists to to do something that's impossible, right? Um, and, and the artists just look back at them and say, "Well, that's impossible." And and Henry Ford with the V8 engine, his engineer said, "That's impossible." And as a leader, he just said, "All right, well, go keep keep working on it. You guys got it, right?" Like he he didn't say, yeah, "Well, we're going to stop paying you if you if you don't figure it out," right? He didn't say. He just he said, "I want this to happen. I want to have this." And you've got to figure out how to make it happen and kept encouraging and, and, you know, pushing and paying them for over a year to, to make that happen. And I think companies don't have room or don't make room for that. Now today we want, we want instant, you know, instant results, instant creativity, instant, um, you know, any, and even Walt Disney, so many of his Academy awards were for creating something that didn't exist before, not just artistically, but but technology that didn't exist in animating and in filmmaking and in you know putting music and and film together, and and so much of that was telling his creatives, look, this is this is what I want. How do you make you know make it happen, make it work, and it and it, they were leaders that basically said, I believe we can create this new thing, figure it out. And they gave the time and the space and the and of course the money um, to to figure those things out. And and like you said, I think it's it's rare. It's a two to five percent that that have that that recognize the value of that space. Yeah, hundred percent. I think this is the story behind like the iPhone, right? Um, Jobs for all his flaws, because that's what you write about when they're dead is all their flaws. Um, did seem to have like, cause that's what, when I wrote this piece in the journal, like that's one of the pushback I got was jobs, you know, cause I'm like listening, empathy and trust are some of the biggest tools for creativity in your organization. And only when you implement those, can you let creativity happen? That's why I call that the let principle. And so people always point out, well, what about Steve jobs? I'm like, well, I didn't say, you know, like Steve jobs had a very low tolerance for people who didn't, you know, succeed and didn't push really hard and work hard. So there's no doubt he had moments in his life where he was difficult to work with, right? But he was an expert listener. He really was because he was able to listen and watch people and know what they wanted before they knew it themselves. He, for the same truth about empathy, right? He was highly empathetic in certain ways. People always 
say empathy is just the ability to oh and can, that's not empathy no, there's so many different empathies and yeah. trust he was very trusting of his team which is why he was livid when they didn't follow through i had ken koshenda on my show he was one of the original members of project purple which was the iphone team and you know he he did confirm a lot of this stuff like that's that you know he would put people in charge and um, say you're 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 the guy, and then if they wouldn't follow through, he would get livid because he had a lot of trust in people. So um, I maintain to this day it's pretty much ironclad. But yeah, <laughs> well, and and I I think he he was he was similar at least in in trusting his team because he didn't want to make a phone. The last thing he wanted to put in the iPhone True. was the phone, <laughs> and and it was his team that that convinced him that it needed to be a phone as well as right. all the you know, the phone and texting was the last thing he wanted to put in there. Um, That's absolutely true. And he pushed, pushed really hard against uh, almost to the point of anger, like, like throwing the piece of junk across the room saying, we're never going to do that. And I, I think about Henry Ford and, and, and Walt and both of the things they regretted later on in life was the outbursts and the, and the anger and the disrespect to people that were, were helping them. And and so there's an interesting element there about that emotional intelligence (laughs) tied to that creative intelligence, I think. Um, but I think there's very few people that push that creativity limit, right? Giving that creativity the space it needs to, to function. Uh, I find it fascinating, right? The company put in the game room and the bean bags and the, the, the beer on tap. And then, oh, wait, you guys got to work 40 hours. Wait, oh, no, wait, in fact, you got to work 45 hours. You can't even take a lunch today. And no wonder no one's in this room. <laughs> uh, so funny right it was just a lever right it's just uh i'm gonna go faster if i you know i'm gonna win a nascar race if i put a better engine in my car right it's just idiotic like no one actually thinks that way in real life or i'm going to lose 30 pounds well i guess people do think that way i'm going to lose 30 (laughs) pounds if i buy a peloton right well you actually you have to understand how to bike first you actually have to understand how to be committed and to eat less and to burn calories and to work before you get the tool but everyone wants to go right to the tool they want it fast well, and that's why today the tool's a pill because we want we want the result without the hard work. And so we'd pay twice as much, three times as much, 10 times as much for a pill that'll get us there rather than a, a goal sheet <laughs> and a 30-minute workout every three days. We will be right back after this short break. This episode is sponsored by the newly released book, Dream Life Planner, Move from Tired and Overwhelmed to Free and Empowered by Noelle L. Peterson, available on Amazon. Or you can order a personalized signed copy at empower, E-M-P-O-W-E-R, to dream.com. That's empower, number two, dream.com. If you enjoy the show, please like and subscribe, leave a review, tell your friends. Welcome back. Let's get back to more greatness. Although although I will say that that I think health awareness is, is rising to a new level um, it doesn't help us that we have a disease care system instead of a health care system. And our food system is completely out of alignment with <laughs> the idea of health. And, and so, yeah, there's a lot of a lot of shifts that would have to happen. But they're all been they've all been driven by the marketplace. Right. Like like the idea that we had food companies that actually pay somebody to to make the crunch more appealing, to make the to make the sound more enticing to. I mean, these were marketing tools at the time, but, and in the end, it makes them look evil, right? But at the time for the company, it was, how do we make this more marketable? How do we make this more appealing to people? 
And of course it led down the, well, we make it sweeter, we make it crunchier, we make it you know, more appealing to, to the taste buds. And of course, in the end, that turns out to be not good for people. Right. <laughs> but that's what that's what gives the market opportunity to the companies who come along and say, hey, that red dye number five they added is not good for you. Here are the negative health effects. Right. And that gives um, when and see, this is why I like the free market. Right. Because you have someone that tries to uh, capitalize on someone's emotions and then you have and then maybe they do things unethically. Right. Which you can do in capitalism. Um, and then you have another company that can pop up and say that's unethical that stuff's crap. We did research. You should choose our stuff. So it's this nice little check and balance system we've developed. Well, and, and it's even, it, it, I think it's even starting to come around, right? Obviously the last two years have been crazy for companies. And, and I think since the eighties, right, the CEO got elevated to this most important status. As far as the stockholders were concerned, they start making choices that no longer, right? My dad worked for his company for 28 years and and that's no that's unheard of today right there's no there's no loyalty to a company there's no there's no long-term benefit from staying staying with a company for for a long time and i think we created this environment where you know the ceo was so important because the stockholders want the stock value and so they fire people at will or pink slip people at will to keep the numbers in the right place and i think there's a place coming where where clients are obviously important because they're the ones paying the bills, right? Stockholders get a benefit from the company doing really good. But then now I think there's a place where the employees have a place, right? Where we're, we're companies that are really going to take care of employees, not just throw a game room in the corner and say, oh, look, look what we've given you guys. But actually giving their employees a voice, giving their employees, you know, not just a paycheck and not just a, the, the job, but actually a voice in the process and a voice in, in just elevating them to a, to a level to have a company that takes care of their clients, takes care of their stockholders and takes care of their employees. Um, but, but I still think they might be five percenters maybe. Yeah. I mean, it show, it really does show the opportunity that someone has an, uh, as an entrepreneur or an intrapreneur, right. And, you know, if you're in a failing organization with corrupt leadership, there's not a lot you can do. So sorry, find a new job, and which is which is you know easier said than done. But when you have a current job, it's really easy to find a new job, right? That's that's the the best time to do it. But it really does like the the bottom line here is that as an individual, people think the bar is so high, right? They think other people are competing so aggressively for those dreams and those spots they want to go after. And the reality is that's not true. Like the bar is actually pretty low. If you put in some effort, you'd be shocked at how fast you can hit your goals. I used to, when I was doing live radio, I would have students say, I want to be on the radio. Like that sounds, you know, really, really cool. I'm sure it took you, you know, you're at the time, how old was I? I don't even, you know, I'm sure it took you like 10 years to get into it. And I'm like, you know, it's not really that hard. Like if you want to get into radio, go to your local radio station and tell them you'll do board hopping. They, they have so much trouble finding anyone who's reliable to do board hopping. They'll hire you. They'll probably hire you. And then once they hire you, it's only a matter of time till they need someone to do a voiceover or an ad. And then it's only a matter of time till maybe you get a news spot. Like one of my producers at the show, super smart guy, he was a little older because most of the time board ops are younger people. And I was like, what is he doing here? He was my producer for the show and board op. He knew this. He had the long game in mind. I think it only took him like three months before he was getting airtime on my show. 
No, not even that. It was like one month before he was getting airtime on my show. A couple months until he was getting like live segments. And, you know, fast forward, I don't even know. It, did it take him under a year? Maybe a year? If that? And he was already, he already had a news segment. He's already one of the news anchors on this radio station now. So, like, it, it doesn't, if you just apply yourself and aggressively pursue your goals, if it's your skill set, if it, if it matches up with your natural skill set, it doesn't take that long these days. Yeah, absolutely. now. Well, and, and if just that idea of, you know, willing to take some steps to move towards your dream, to move towards your goal. Um, and, and I think the universe honors that, right? If the goal stays up here, the idea stays up here, the, the oh, I'm going to do this someday dream stays up here. But when you put it into action, the universe honors that. It, it starts to, to open a pathway and starts to put things together that, that bring the right people into the right places. And, and, you know, some people call it luck, but really it's, it's opportunity because you're taking action. And I mean, it's also about natural skill, right? Like if you're doing a good job aligning something that you want to do with natural skill, you're naturally going to pursue it more aggressively than everybody else. So they're just going to filter out uh, simple, like simple, if you just think of um, a race, right, and someone who trains a lot and really loves it, probably going to do better than the rest of the people. They're going to get tired or not want to do it. It's very simple. Like if something is your natural ability and you're aligning with something you want to do, you're probably going to be the one studying at night on it for fun, right? You think it's fun that you're reading books on it, you're studying on it, you're talking to other people who love it. You're naturally just going to beat the tar out of other people if you put in the work. But some people rely on natural talent, which doesn't work. Some people rely on just hard work, which also doesn't work. You do have to have some – it has to be a natural fit for your strengths. But the people who do both just beat the living daylights out of everybody else. It is not even not even a competition. But, you know, you have to put in – you know, you have to obviously have both. Absolutely. All right, so let, let's talk a little bit about. Obviously, you made this transition into to communication and and PR. Um, so let's talk about the value of connection and and making connections and, and not just building a network, but building a network that 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 you're serving and that you're you're lifting up so that so that they're lifting you up. Yeah. So so let's what let's do for it. you. <laughs> Oh, what worked for me? Um, so the reason I do PR and communication is because uh, I realized that the best, I, I naturally believed in what David Burkus calls the mousetrap myth, right? Build, build a better mousetrap, the world will be at a path to your door. That's basically false. It's, it's very false. Actually, um, I was reading in uh, uh, Rita McGrath's book, Seeing Around Corners, Seeing Around something like that. I, I think that's the title. Um, just this little tidbit, it was in the introduction, I read the whole book, but in the introduction or chapter one or something, she mentions that Orville uh, and Wilbur Wright, and you know, when they invented flight, um, there's this little tidbit that like, it didn't even get written about for three until like three years later. Like you'd think human flight would be an achievement, like everyone would be talking about it within days. And it was a different time, right? 1907 or something like that, 1905. But you'd think, okay, at least three months, right? At least three months, six months, maybe a year. Nope. Not until three years later, the New York Times actually writes something about it. And not until five years after human flight was already achievable did most Americans, they, they didn't even think it was still possible. They didn't think human flight was possible. And, 
you know, people think, well, the internet's changed everything. Yeah, it has, but it's also injected a lot more fake stuff too. And it's much, it's still pretty hard to vet a true story. And so the same principle is true. Like great ideas don't actually bubble to the top. They just don't. If you have the better idea, I think there's this great, is it Howard Aiken and IBM has this quote. He's, he's dead. He's, you know, years ago, but uh, he had this great quote. I think it's Howard Aiken. Um, he's like, don't worry about people stealing your idea, because if your idea is any good, you're going to have to shove it down people's throat. And that's very true. Like the, the reason you're, you know, if you're at, you're at your job and you have the better idea or you're an entrepreneur and you have the better company, you're, it's naturally not going, people aren't going to see your idea for what it is. They're not going to, and they can't naturally see the better idea. What they can see, because we all rely on low energy tasks, what we can see is the thing that's already working for us. And we calculate in our head, because most service sucks, we calculate in our head, like, is it worth the time and energy spent to moving to this new solution? Like, is that really worth it? We all do that mental math and we all usually decide it's not worth it unless someone else tells us about it, right? Unless a journalist we trust tells us about it, unless a friend says, have you tried? And so that's my obsession, right? Is amplifying the best ideas and people and entrepreneurs on planet earth, because I know that without concrete strategies to get in front of other people, it's, it's not possible. And you have to, so what I always tell people, the best way to use, you know, utilize your relationships to get your message out there is to uh, first identify your audience. Who, who is the person that's going to buy your thing, right? Your, your company, you do, you do service. Uh, find out the person who already influences that audience. Go after them and trade them something of value. Give them something of value, right? So the classic PR way of doing this is like send a blast out to 20,000 people and hope someone comes back. And it's like, look at this company. It's really cool. You should write about it. This is, I used to write for the Washington Post, Harvard Business Review, Wall Street Journal, and I get these pitches all the time. Look at how cool this company is. You should write about it. Like that's not valuable for me. I don't, I don't care. I don't care about this company at all. I don't care about you. I don't care about your CEO. I'm sure he's a nice guy. And you know, maybe he has a pool table in the lobby. That's great, but I don't care. And so what the, the successful pitch is, hey, I know you write about this kind of stuff. I know you geek out about this kind of stuff. I know your readers will click on an article that has this kind of stuff. So here's this stuff, right? That's a trade. Great PR, great amplification of your own message should never feel as though you're forcing something square peg round hole. It should feel as if you are doing a service to that person influencing your industry. And I don't say like influencer, like TikTok influencer, like, uh, Robert, you're an influencer to your audience. Right. And so I'm trading something of value, hopefully to get in front of that audience. Uh, or if I'm pitching, uh, I got a client, the client of mine got eight paragraphs in the wall street journal a couple, couple weeks ago because I reached out to the journalist and said, Hey, I know you're writing on this thing. And this client has that information that'll make your piece great. And he's like, Oh my gosh, you're right. Let's interview him. And so it's about trade. It's about fine. And it, it, it's sometimes it's, it's different, right? It's, uh, one of my clients, um, sore.com it's, uh, Paul Allen, the ancestry guy is doing sore.com right now. And for him, I reached out, Paul's a really good guy. And I reached out and I said, Hey, I know, I know you're doing this new company. We've talked to, cause I met him for a podcast years ago and, uh, he was on my show. And so I reached out later. I said, Hey, you and I talked about X, Y, and Z when you were in the studio or when, when we were doing the interview, I would like to do this for you. Um, because I think that this could be value for your new company. 
And in exchange, you know, I want to do this thing. And it, we were going to collaborate. It was going to be this little free deal. Uh, and it, it, eventually it turned into a client relationship, which is great. But again, it's um, reaching out to someone with value, right? Whether it be a journalist, whether it be a conference. There are some conferences I've reached out to where I was like, I want to be in front of their audience. It's thousands of people that are in my space. So I reached out and said, hey, I can teach your attendees these three things. In exchange, I just want to speak there and have you put me on that stage, right? That's an exchange. They got value. I got value. It should never be, if you want to get your message out there, it should never be uh, you trying to plead with someone to put your message on a stage or put your message in the paper because they have an obligation to their audience, their listeners, their readers, their watchers. So you need to, it needs to be a change. It needs to be an exchange. And you can do everything in the right, you, you can do everything right. You can have the perfect um, story. You can pitch it to the perfect journalist, the perfect time, and they can still turn it down because they don't see the value. But at a baseline, it needs to always be a value exchange to get into other audiences, right? And to spread your message that way. Well, and it's so important that that you're you're adding value to them, and and we they talk about it all the time, right? That oh, add value, add value, um, and I think for many people, the the thought of adding value always comes to paying them rather than you know creatively adding value in you know hey, this is the information that your audience enjoys. This is some some information that I've just found through research. And we put those two things together and say, hey, this this is what your audience is looking for. Can I right. can I help you share it with them? And, and paying is fine. That's still valuable, right? We call that advertising when you pay for that exchange, right? Because they don't see value in your message or story. They're like, well, your story sucks. But if you want to give us money, sure, I guess we'll put you on the page, right? That's advertising. And so the problem with advertising is you'll notice, I mean, the click click-through rate is 0.5%. I think it's probably lower at this point, but the click-through rate rate in an ad, a digital ad these days is 0.5%. I think when it started out, it was somewhere around 40%, which is kind of weird to think of. Uh, digital marketers would love that kind of conversion rate. Well, but, of course they did. And that's what- Yeah, that's it's what, like 0.5%. That's what grew it a, so fast. Yeah. In the beginning, it worked. <laughs> right, right, exactly. But like, this is this is why conversion rates are so bad because people aren't, they're not actually exchanging anything of value. The the editor or the writer, the publication knows it. So like, eh, put an ad on here, that's fine. Nothing happens. Um, you know, and so the my clients don't ever pay for ads. They get free placement because we exchange different value. And we exchange value that's aligned, great stories, great value in that way are aligned with the readers, watchers, and listeners. But ads aren't. No, they can be, right? And I'm not dogging on ads. Ads uh, and paying for placement, if it is the right message for the right audience, you don't have the time to develop a story for the journalist or wait for their time schedule or, the, or the, their next piece. Some, some of these, for one client, I pitched a Time Magazine, and it took, I think, almost two years to finally get that to go through. So, you know, if you don't have the time, advertising is fine. It's, it, it can be a very, very effective strategy if you do it right. But, you know, I, I don't I'm not an ad, ad ad shop. I do organic. I do trade value. <laughs> nice. I think you made me think of uh, seeing some of these the drug commercial and then all at the bottom of the commercial, it says, see our ad in Dog Walker magazine. You're like, Whoa, I don't get that. Where am I, I going to get weird, that right? magazine? Like, so the, the alignment isn't is, doesn't seem to be there. But those are always so weird. I, I don't know anything about like I'm assuming there's a reason they do that. <laughs> 
Like, is there I, some compliance? I don't know what that is. Or I've credibility that's weird. or I don't know. <laughs> yeah, just like not... go. Don't don't do business with us. Go get this magazine off a shelf and look at our ad. I mean, you're already watching the ad. I don't get that. <laughs> weird. It is, it's really weird. It is really weird. All right, Justin, I'm going to switch gears just a little bit. Uh, share share about your favorite date with your wife or most memorable date with your wife. Oh, wow. Okay, so that would be the first one, definitely. And um, so I was in high school and 17 years old. And uh, only girl I ever dated, only girl I married. People wow. think that's weird. Um, no, we're not, we're not in some like arranged marriage thing that like forced us to. It's just that's... She was great. So she did break up with me once, but I got her back with an Nalgene bottle and a grilled cheese sandwich. The secret, by the way, is lo lots of butter. Lots of butter is the secret there. Uh, so our first date was um, the most awkward. It was after a soccer game, and I, like an idiot, I was playing soccer, and I was like, well, after I'll take her out. And like an idiot, I kind of forgot that the soccer field was in this newer um, like the, the, our school was going through a transition. The soccer field was not near the school. It was a different location. We didn't have showers. Uh -oh. Like everyone. And so I'm like, wait a minute. I didn't think this through. Like I, I'm going to be smelling. So I literally showered in the sink. And um, I, by the time we got to Panera, it was a local Panera in near, near the Des Moines Metro. By the time we got there, it was already like 745, 730, and her curfew was 830 because her dad, like I asked her dad what the curfew was. He's like, 830? I don't, like he had no clue. He wasn't even ready for anybody to ask his daughter out. So I asked him, what, what's, what's curfew? She was young. She was 15 at the time. And so, um, yeah, we, we got there. She took probably 15 minutes to order because she was nervous. And so we have to like wolf, wolf the food down and like, <laughs> and like hightail it back over to get her home. So it was a really bizarre date, but it, but it, it worked out. We've been married now 16 years. Well, that's exciting. And, and I think it, it, it goes back to that choice, right? We talked about the one thing, but, or the one person, but it, it's really a choice and, and you guys choose to, chose to latch on to each other and honor yep, that commitment true. to each other and, and have continued um, working without quitting, <laughs> yep. working through the relationship stuff, but, but recognizing that the value was, was there. And I think that's the challenge, right. In, in, in separating, when do we give up on this relationship or when do we give up on this business? <laughs> you know, where's the value? Yeah. I would definitely say business advice is different than marriage advice, right? <laughs> yeah. But, th but there are some similarities. There are some, yeah, there, there are, are some, some crossovers. Sure. Absolutely. And, and I think in, in relationships, people give up way too soon because they totally they agree. don't get the I, help I, they need. They don't get, they don't set good expectations and, and learn the things they need to learn to make it work. Right. Right. Yeah. It was weird. I, when we got married, we first got married and our, on our, like the night of our, uh, wedding, like at the reception and everything. And we were getting advice and within like the next, I would say three weeks, we were getting advice like, um, Oh man, that first year is really hard. It's just brutal. It's really hard. And we we're like, Oh wow. Marriage, marriage sounds terrible. When, when all you, when we're listening to all this advice, first year was a breeze. And then we got, well, that second year though, woo, that's a dude. And we, every year, for like, I would say the first five years, we were hearing how the next year, that was the tough one. And it eventually hit me as like, y'all just have really crappy marriages. Like, this is not my fault that you guys have crappy marriages and are selfish. Like, that's your fault. Don't project that onto me. Oh, good job, Justin. That's, that's, uh, I think about, 
you know, one of the things having teenage, having had teenage drivers and, and seeing the way our culture reacts to a teenage driver, getting their driver's license, you know, we, we make all these statements about get off the sidewalks. Oh, they're going to be terrible. Oh, they're going <laughs> to, yeah. they're going to wreck the car. And so what happens? They wreck the car, they get into trouble. And, you know, so I made it, a, I made a commitment that anytime somebody shares, you know, oh, they just got their driver's license. I'm like, oh, they're going to be so great. They're going to do such a great job. And, and it worked with my kids. My kids didn't have accidents. They didn't get tickets and, and they were great drivers because I spent all this time encouraging them saying, you're going to be a great driver. Don't listen to these voices right. of these voices of dissent around us. And, and it's sarcasm and they think it's cute. And, and everybody wants to, you know, participate and, and have something, you know, stupid to say, but, but we're not encouraging. And it's kind of the same thing in business. When, when we hear somebody yep. started a business, oh, that's, oh, that's a dumb idea. Oh, that's terrible. Why would you ever do that? <laughs> instead of, instead of saying, Hey, what are you selling? Can I buy something? How can I help? Yeah. Tell me about it. Yeah. How can I help? Tell me about what you're doing. I want to tell everybody else because I'm your friend and I want to help support it. But, but you're that, that's that 90% that are stuck in autopilot. They're, they're stuck, you know, miserable in their own life because they're choosing yep. to be victims and look at all the sad blah, blah, all around us. And there's plenty of that. Trust me that, you know, Facebook is just a plethora of, of all of that. And, and in between you get the one or two good stories. The, the media loves all of that because people eat it up. There's yep. a reason the media portrays all the negatives. It's not because the media wants to. It's because that's what people pay for. Yeah, that's and, what they and, click on. And exactly. And our culture doesn't get it. We're like, oh, this is so bad. Oh, this is so bad. It's like, stop clicking on it and they'll change. Yeah, it's true. <laughs> yeah. If you want to, if you want to change the media, change yourself, right? Like, absolutely. But people don't, they, they cannot. And the, the media knows that. They know if they stick that story in your face, you're going to click on it. And the more times they're proven right, the more times they're going to shell out that kind of stuff, right? And there are publications that have made a lot of money, by the way, on great journalism. Uh, companies like the Wall Street Journal, right? They are the leader in circulation size for a reason, because they work very hard. They do great journalism and and. I don't even know if they, I mean, I'm sure they've done clickbait stuff, but they rarely do clickbait stuff. It's really, really good journalism. And there's a reason they're in the number one circulation size. And and they, cause there are a lot to, of people that want that. Yeah. They're committed to, to sharing the business side and, and sharing, you know, very good journalism, <laughs> which nowadays in this, in this space where anybody can start a podcast, anybody can start an, a, a news blog, anybody can start, you know, spreading yuck. Um, it's, it's rare, but like you said, the two to 5%, <laughs> I think, and, and, and as long as they stay there and they choose to stay there, it's like, I was, I, I wrote, I wrote a book last year. And one of the things you look at all these people promising Amazon bestseller and a wall street journal bestseller or <laughs> New York times bestseller and, and New York yeah. times doesn't even have a, like, like their system is so private that they don't even, they don't even tell you how to get on the New York Times bestseller. You can list. buy like, your way on there. I talked with an author who got on the New York Times bestseller list, and she told yes. me, yeah, um, like I had a connection, and they bought my way on there. Like most people don't know that. They also don't know if you sell a lot of books, um, you can sell more books than the number one on the New York Times bestseller list and not get on the list. Right. Um, 
Wall Street Journal list is not very, as far as I know, is not gameable. That's actually the one that should be the gold standard, but everyone thinks of the New York Times bestseller list. And no doubt, if you get on the New York Times bestselling list, that's great. It's right. great PR. It's great feather in your hat. It's very, very cool. But that being said, like I think people don't realize how much you can game the system. Uh, there was a Verge article. Actually, there's a recent article in Bloomberg that came out about uh, people buy, buying podcast slots for like 50 grand. Uh, and that writer, it, it, it was all over the place, right? And that writer, I reached out to her and I was like, super fascinating. Did you know that people can also buy their way on the top 50 list? She's like, yeah, I wrote about it in The Verge in 2018. Sure enough, she had. And yeah, like one podcaster got in the top 50 list for five bucks. Um, click farms, like it's pretty easy, right? They're fake everything, fake Twitter accounts, fake Facebook accounts, fake listenership. There's so much fake. And, and it's, and it's tempting. Like I've gotten offers from, from other countries <laughs> that have said, you know, Hey, pay this fee and we'll get you, uh, you know, 10,000 downloads and, and, yep. and all these things. I'm like, oh, for what? Cause it, cause it won't change anything. Right. I mean, it, it, it gives me a number that I could tell somebody, but the truth is less than 1% of people that come on the show ask about numbers. They want to be in a good conversation and they want to have, you know, uh, be on a good podcast. And but it's tempting. Like like there's this place where you yeah, say and it can, can work, honestly. <laughs> right. Like if you buy your way on the top 50 and other uh, listeners find it and subscribe, that can work. Right. Uh, you know, that stuff can work. However, here's the problem. It's not a good long game because eventually you get found out someone finds you out the risk is so high that someone eventually finds out there and the story gets out somehow or people um do business with you and realize something's a little off like <laughs> it never works right the people who try these strategies and they're deceptive in their public image uh, I, I cannot remember the last one that it actually worked long term. And, you know, maybe there's some that it is working right now and they haven't had the veil ripped off their face yet. But it, it's so high risk. I have seen so many contacts of, and friends of mine that have tried stuff like this. And I'm like, oh, boy, let me know how that works out. And they justify it saying, hey, the system is corrupt. And so I have you have to do this in order to play in the corrupt system. And I was like, good luck with that. Sounds, and it sounds never, like, sounds I've like never Barry Bonds. <laughs> <laughs> and I've never seen it work. Yeah. It I works mean, short it, term, but it burns out pretty fast. I mean, it's the same, it's the same thing, you know, Barry Bonds and, and Armstrong both said like the system's gamed and I'm supposed to be the best. And so now I got to compete against these best, you know, in the game system. And so I got to do what they're doing. Cause I'm, I'm sick and tired of Sammy Sosa hitting more home runs than me when I'm clearly a better baseball yep. player than he is. Um, and, and that's the challenge. Then they, they all three of them get ruined. Right. And, yep, and, correct. you know, reputation gets ruined. And, and, and of course, all the record that of the fact that you were a better baseball player gets lost in the asterisks. Right. And, and, and it's a shame. I, but I, I felt the temptation. Like I've been running my podcast for a year, got over 200 episodes. And sometimes you look at the numbers and you go, oh, they just said, they said, if I'm consistent, they said, if right. I'm, you know, I'm doing all the things they said to do, and and it's still, uh, I'm getting beat by some kid who started his two weeks ago, and he's got four thousand, you know, downloads per episode. You're like, wow, because he did a TikTok dance with his shirt <laughs> off or something. Yeah, the, you know, but I think a lot of people. I remember when I had a client, and we did a, I was doing a content strategy for him, and they're, 
uh, I, at this point, I had written in the Wall, the Wall Street Journal and the Washington Post, and I remember that we did this content strategy um, because for them, they're very they're a very upstream company, and so it, it's a long story to get into why and who they are and what they do, but. Basically, they, no one that uses, they do business with all the really top tech companies in the world from a manufacturing standpoint. And none of these companies, Apple and Samsung, this isn't their clients, but just as, as an example, well, they may be, I don't know. Um, but none of them shop out, hey, we're working on a new phone. Who knows a, who knows a good manufacturing part? You know, none of them do right. that. And so they had decided the best strategy was uh, search engine optimized articles that answered a questions their engineers were probably asking. And so that's what we did. And I was super discouraged because some of these articles were getting like 20 clicks a week. And I'm like that or 30 clicks a week, like 50 on a good day. And I was like, this is bad. And so I was going to change strategies. But first I just came to the client. And I was like, I'm going to take a beating for this. And his name's Aaron. And I went, Aaron, dude, um, here. So here's how we're doing. And um, and I didn't say we're going to change strategies yet, but I'm like, here's how we're doing. And, blah, and he has cut me off. And he's like, that's amazing. I didn't know that many people were reading this. And he goes, I didn't know there were that many people working on these challenges. And I'm like, wait, what? I said, I thought we were going to do a lot better. He's like, how would we do better? He's like, uh, there are only a handful of our competitors we have in the entire world. And there are only maybe 10 to 15 people in the world working on these problems right now. Like for one deal for them would make their year, right? Maybe a, a two, two to three deals would make their year. So because these pieces were highly targeted, he knew that only their target market were probably reading these. And he's like, if I have 20 target markets that are reading these every week, like that's insane coverage we have never seen in this company's history. Fast forward to today, the, these SEO efforts represent half their all overall revenue. And they used to rely on just cold calls and sales and going to conferences. And he's like, I never in my wildest dreams imagined that this online channel could turn this much revenue. That's fantastic. I just had different, I just, you know, I, again, it comes back to numbers, right? Why do you want 20 million downloads? You know, is, is 50 listens good enough? Uh, is like, you have to go back and think, what's your actual goal? Because if you have 50, dedicated listeners on a podcast for anyone listening and you're a pretty niche podcast and you offer a niche service or something that's that's 50 people that are like consuming your messages that's a pretty good little sales driver you have going there so Absolutely. like everyone wants to compare themselves to like um cable news ratings but that's the general mass message and no you know you're like that's well, the not TV's, so and the, know yeah, what those goals are and they're watching TV while they're doing the dishes, right. like getting getting right. the number. Right. <laughs> Not listening to anything. All right, Justin, you've been on talking to an entrepreneur's audience for an hour, and you want to leave them with Justin's words of wisdom. What would you share? Oh gosh, I hate moments like this. The words ah, of wisdom welcome. are uh, <laughs> words of wisdom are um I guess the bar is low, so work hard because it's not that hard to outpace everybody. Do your Gallup strengths and pull out your Google Podcast app and search for Justin Brady show and hit subscribe. We just had Cal Newport on. This is we uh, when we're recording it, he just the interview just went up today. Nice. Justin, thank you so much for hanging out, for sharing some really great stuff and just having a great conversation. Robert, thanks for the thanks for the invite. It was an honor to be on the show. Really appreciate it. If you enjoyed the show, please like, subscribe, or leave a review. We have a free gift for you. 
at addvaluemindset.com. That's addvaluemindset.com. We've collected some of the best mindset secrets shared by successful entrepreneurs on our podcast, and we want to give them to you for free. addvaluemindset.com. In our next episode, Chris Michelle and Robert dig deep. Chris lost his brother to suicide, and it made him evaluate his 30-year corporate career and ask himself if he was making the impact that he wanted to make. Mental health is another topic that needs to be talked about like money. But for entrepreneurs, it's even more important than money because male entrepreneur suicide is one of the highest categories. You are not alone. You don't have to be alone. And you have to be willing to talk about the struggles and get the help you need to get the results that you are proud of.